Conversations in Society. We talk racism, culture, politics, and economics, the issues that matter to you. Just to move us on to black and marginalized ethnic people contributions in the UK. Let's talk about it. What are some of the contributions of, I mean, we could go with any black, Asian, traveler communities um, that you're aware of um, that made a contribution to the UK? Yeah, I mean, the, the contribution is 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 infinite, you know, and the contribution of, of every aspect of society is infinite. And if we were doing this whole living thing properly, we would just talk about the contribution of great humans to this civilization. But if we were to pick it out, um, I think we, uh, you know, I personally would go back and think about the one of the things that I think has been um, really influential is religious practice in this country has really been influenced by the contribution made by other communities. Often ethnic minority communities are more um, observant of their religious faiths and there's a greater relationship with the spiritual and that transcends to a greater relationship with elder members of the community as often that responsibility is seen as having spiritual elements, right? You cannot, um, we, you know, I think in, in, in most uh, black and Asian communities, it's, it's probably like abandonment to leave old people in old people's homes. Of course, sometimes you have to do that because people have complex, you know, needs or dementia and things like that. But there's still the, the response, the idea that you have that responsibility, you know, looking at, you know, you mentioned the Sikh community and, you know, anytime there's any disaster, you see them open up their temples to everybody, you know, and the idea that the, in a Sikh temple, anyone can go inside a, a Sikh temple um, and, and you know, receive... Uh, Longer. Yeah. Yeah. Longer, yeah. You know, and, and that's uh, something that I think has contributed in the Christian tradition. The influence of the black church has been phenomenal um, to all denominations of Christianity. But often if you go to areas that have, uh, you know, significant black populations, they are significantly the people who are in those con- con- congregations. And if you look at the posters, particularly in you know, London, where I'm from, you see the posters there for the, the black churches. You know, they're the ones that are pulling people in and who are bringing a new narrative to to Christianity. And of course, the uh, Muslim community has done a lot to really highlight the importance of spirituality and religious observance and normalizing that. What the British Muslim Mm. community has done in fighting for the right to prayer spaces, in fighting the right to wear their religious clothing um, in public places and in in the workplace has been a great, great asset to liberalism in this country, in my opinion, and to the furtherance of religious dominance and religious tolerance in this country as well. And it is now beautiful to see buses going past me that are saying Ramadan Kareem on the side of them. Um, But that hasn't just come overnight been because that community has normalized religiosity in the public space and so I would say that that's one of the biggest contributions that I can see of minority communities um, to British society. I remember going to school and we were talking about RE and religious studies and all of that and so I had this white uh, teacher and he was like only Muslims get arranged marriage and I was like excuse me, um, my parents had an arranged marriage uh, and I'm not Muslim. Um, and he was like, no, they didn't. And I was like, they did. He was like, well, it wouldn't have been a proper arranged marriage. It would have been just something similar, but not the same because only Muslims have arranged marriage. <laughs> and I, I remember at the time just being like, I wish I had have said something and really shown him up in that room. I really should have shown him up in that yeah. classroom. But um, looking back at it now, I realised how how racist and how ignorant those comments were Um, but I really hope that nowadays people aren't and I know people still there's still a lot of like um, hair discrimination there's a lot of like Mm. um, just a lot of everything still happening in the classroom but I really am seeing that more of these kind of conversations are being challenged 
Yeah. Um, and it's not it's not as ignorant as it used to be or as racist as it used to be. It's still racist, it's still ignorant, and we still got some way to go, but it seems like it's getting better. There are a lot of things, you know, that our communities are also reappropriating that were that were made that were demonized as part of the colonial process. And I think things like arranged marriage, I remember laughing and being in hysterics when I saw this show and I think they have an American version and a UK version where they have a team of psychiatrists or something and they meet oh. and they match people. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. I, I refuse to watch it because it is an appropriation of Indian culture because the moment... <laughs> no, no, no. I know what it is. Sorry. Is it married at first sight? The moment that a brown person says that they've got a, they want an arranged marriage, everyone looks at them. Yes. That's true. That's so true. So when I'm I'm hearing um, police, what is it, police unit set up to investigate arranged marriages in the Indian community. I mean, and of course, as you said, there's a difference between arranged and forced. And what they really should be talking about is forced marriage. Um, and they don't they don't talk about the fact that actually in, in, in all of these societies, though divorce is frowned upon, it's actually sometimes easier for women to get divorced in some of these cultures than it is for traditionally has been for white women to get divorced in this country. They don't talk about that as well. Or that the family as a whole takes a responsibility for the success of the marriage but even that aside that made me laugh the next thing that made me laugh that's just hilarious to me is polyamory this um polyamory that's now come or, or what is it responsible polygamy or whatever it is. i'm like what, what what are you talking about this is what people have been doing in africa and in the middle east and in asia Time immemorial, and the idea in the African tradition is that the there was always less men because they died in war, and men tend to live, live uh, for a long, shorter period of time. And women were the principal farmers, and men would have multiple uh, wives. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how we we lived our our lives. But you know, people were demonized, people were denied access to education if they were polygamous. I remember a couple of years ago, Jacob Zuma, the for- and he's a person with many many issues. The former um, president of um, South Africa, I think he married five women at the same ceremony or something oh. like that. They demonized him. They absolutely demonized him. And that's their culture in that yeah. place. That's how that, you know, that's, but they absolutely demonized him. Um, you know, how much has been said about the Caribbean community and the idea of of, of having multiple relationships and things like that. Just demonization of black men that have more than one family. You know, so much has been done. And then now I turn on TV and there's shows on me and my two boyfriends, me and my two girlfriends. I'm an ethical polyamorous. I'm like, excuse me, you know, you've, you've abused people all over the Middle East for having multiple marriages, all over Africa for having multiple marriages, and now you're reappropriating it. So even things like that, ideas of the family, ideas of marriage, even that marriage is a thing, you know, and ideas of sexuality, um, sexual expression and the organization of the family, that is things that, those are things that minority communities are also contributing. Even in how school is done, now everyone's talking about we need to remove the walls of the school and we need to, you know, they want to now have kids with no, no tables and chairs in the classroom and free learning. I'm like, isn't that what you met in Africa? Weren't kids free learning when they were running around, learning to, you know, run and play drums and, you know, use chairs and cook with their parents, learning by apprenticeship, going with their parents to the farms. And you took them from those situations, you stuck them into classrooms with concrete and wooden desks, mm-hmm. 10 of them in a row, and you started teaching them ABC. I'm not, you know, getting rid of intellectualism, it's important, but these are things that are ours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were ours and we have given it to this society. What our responsibility is, is to document these things and own them as ours. You know, something like arranged marriage, own it and say, like any institution, it, ha- it had an origin. It had an origin. You know? This idea that you don't need to spend 30 years dating someone before you make a commitment. 
And the idea that actually making the commitment first can influence success. That is an, ideo- an ideology of marriage, a philosophy of the family. The idea that commitment comes first and success is a function of commitment is a philosophy of the family that belongs to somebody. There are many that belong to somebody that should be documented as a philosophy of family and it should be assigned to the people who've introduced it into this country because they have some of the most successful marriages. And, you know, but these are things we have to do. We have to write these histories. We have to make sure that people understand the idea. You know, I remember growing up as someone was talking when I, I had stepsisters and brothers very late. I was 20 when I had my first, when my dad remarried. And I remember somebody saying, um, oh, you, your stepbrother. I said, my step, uh-huh. No, no, no. <laughs> my, brother. my brother. Yes. Yeah. In African culture, we don't have anything like step. Step. Not step, not the half. The Caribbean too. I had no idea what's a half. <laughs> yeah, same here. Same. Yeah. When some, I was so uncomfortable when I started hearing stepbrother, half. What? What? Yeah. I can't even say cousin. When in my, in my household, I say cousin. And I remember like the way my uncle would be looking at me. The amount of times I would get cussed for saying cousin. Yeah. But I'm like, but, but, but these white people at school, they understand me when I say so. sister or sister. Ain't got no brothers. They've seen it as my cousin. Your mother's friends are your aunties. Yeah. Mother's friends are your uncles. Yes. Yeah. Oh, like. Yeah. Don't get started. We don't go to deep house. That's auntie. That's Honestly. Auntie. <laughs> or Miss Guthrie. There ain't nothing else. All the times I have to go and um, tell people that's not my auntie like that. It's my auntie, but it's not my auntie like that. I'm, t- I'm tired of that. <laughs> and the idea as well that what you name people is it, it, it the, what you name people or how you feel about people and your interaction with them is a function of what you name them is very mm-hmm. important because orality is important in our cultures how you call someone that's why you don't give people random names because you like the sound of it names have meaning because when you are calling a child you are venerating that child so when you are calling someone your auntie you are saying to them you are more to me than a stranger you are more to me than who you were before I met you you are to me a function of our relationship and I see that relationship as being familial you know I know you you know me you know my family that is something that is in our culture innately we should be proud of it and you will see that it's in Asian culture and it's in African culture and it's in Caribbean culture and we have given it to the community when you hear urban kids of every shade talk about my my man my brother bro cuz who gave you these words who gave you these words yeah period we give them these words these are our ways of speaking and you know i get text messages from people who I've connected with on the internet like you through Instagram and they're calling me queen and I'm responding king you know and that's the vocabulary of veneration that is steeped in our society Um, and and that is something we are giving back to people we are giving back hugs half hugs you know so let everyone understand we are not cultural we're not a cultural vacuum we have given a lot in the small and in the big ways as well. Yeah. I think I just wanted to add just before we move into the next question as well, when we were talking about family and about how we, um, we, family is a big thing within um, black and brown communities. And so like when we look at the statistics around fostering and, and all those other kind of elements, we always see that, oh, it's underrepresented within black communities and brown communities. But what we don't realize is how many grandparents took an over uh, are looking after their grandkids how many aunts and uncles are looking after their nieces mm-hmm. and nephews how many um and they will even punish you for that if you try to look after your nieces and nephews without going to tell some official and they find out they will come and punish yeah. you so often yeah, yeah. yeah people don't even say that they'll just say that's my mum because they know yeah. that this, this society they want to document everything you know yeah yeah and they and the thing is with the respectful nature is the reason why they don't document it is because they don't want that 
the parent to be penalized yes so they try to do it and just look after them and then just say well we're just going to do it in-house yeah. and then you don't get the money side of it as well the financial yes. benefits that uh, white people often get from which which is needed you need to you need finances to help support and, and look after these children and then you look at why are we into only social economic issues because mm-hmm. we're not getting the financial support but i just want people to also think about who, who are listening about when we're looking at statistics look at them from a if you look at them from a culturally competent perspective look at those communities what are they actually doing and why are they why are the figures not showing what is happening in the communities absolutely so i just wanted to add economically marginalized ethnic communities have been contributing so i got this from open open it is a london based uh, think tank black and marginalized ethnic contributions to the economy according to open um is 74 billion pounds to the UK economy that makes up a sixth of six million businesses registered in the UK and just to talk about employability that's nearly three million and this is between 2019 and 2000 uh, sorry in 2020 so we're not talking back in the day this Mm. is you know very current and eight of the UK's 23 tech unicorns um yeah are from black and marginalized ethnic backgrounds so 100% um, towards the UK economy also um, we're making a massive contribution an absolute massive contribution but that also brings me to this question there's an argument around tackling social issues being the enemy of the economy I've seen it all the time now especially now that we're in a period where we're looking at anti-racism anti-racist practice in the workplace there's almost this trade-off in terms of the communication mm. of many companies have um, are trying to build themselves back up and they're saying, ah, why should I bother about tackling anti-racism in the workplace? Why should I care so much about instilling practices that um, or you know, um, making my space more accessible, inclusive of, of um, disability and gender and all these are basic social inequalities we have today it's not it's counterproductive of my profitability now what's your take of that because my obvious answer is that's ludicrous because at the end of the day it's 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 nothing to do with race to stop making money but i thought yeah let's open it up a payday and then gita give me your what your opinions well, have you ever heard the phrase that, um, what did they say, India was the jewel in the crown of the British Empire? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this idea that we only just started contributing money is, is just not true. We have been the principal contributors to this economy for the last 500 years. Um, so anything that this country has, um, originally it was the Caribbeans, the Afro-Caribbeans who provided the free labor that grew crops and the materials that were used in factories. If they had paid those people the money they were deserved, that they deserved, then 24 billion would be a joke. Yep. Um, in, on the even if they paid them the minimum wage, right? Um, so know what you cannot um, the, the free labor that the UK took from Afro Caribbeans and African Americans for hundreds uh, of years is uh, whatever the British, how many people were here, the British working class contributed was but a mere fraction compared to that free labor. Then we go to India. Um, where various forms of, of servitude were imposed, brutal, brutal working conditions were imposed. And, you know, the, uh, the insult of calling it a jewel, yet um, the people were exploited and regimes, local regimes were bolstered where they didn't have to have any accountability to the people. No one is saying that those regimes were not there before they were not totalitarian and whatever but those local monarchs could do what they did with insulation because they did not have to listen to the people because they they didn't have to raise armies from the people they they had the british warfare to crush the people if they wanted to so we have that as well and we can continue to find examples so we have been the principal economic contributors to this country for 500 years 
whatever pennies anybody's throwing to us now is a fraction of what is old um, to to our ancestors, essentially. Irrespective of where on the on the ladder you were, whether you're you're descended from people who were in the upper classes or not, even if you're descended from people who are in the upper classes, can anyone actually measure the loss of sovereignty, the psychological loss of subjugation? How do you measure that in material sense? Now, when we come to the idea of anti-blackness and um, training, um, I, I have quite a, an interesting take on these things. It's going to be a controversial take on. Uh, anti-blackness training not, not anti-black what is it um cultural diversity training and things like that and i see it as a victory it is an absolute victory um against white supremacy and white um dominance and we should take it as a victory because what we are saying and it's going to be very controversial but what we are saying is if you don't want to learn how to live with other people we are going to make it very difficult for you so this is your it's like a little child Absolutely. Child, if you're not going to take this lesson and take your time out <laughs> and write your lines, then you're going <laughs> to decide what you want to do because what's coming after this is not going to be pretty because what's come after this is going to be boycotts. If you don't want to treat us properly, we're going to stop coming to work. We're going to organize and we're going to stop coming to work. If you don't want to treat us properly, we will start boycotting your goods. We will start boycotting your your cafes. We will start boycotting everything because that's all one person has to do. Boycott day. Let's we've got Black Pound Day. Let's have boycott day. One go to work. Them let them continue with their nonsense. Let's see how long they last. And I actually got this from my shopkeeper downstairs because I walked into the shop one day and they'd moved all the cigarettes away. And it was because they were changing the display. And I said to him where are the cigarettes you know and he said oh we don't sell cigarettes anymore I said people are going to die in this country he doesn't <laughs> and he's like oh you know they were, he was joking with me he's like oh they're too expensive you know they're, too, they're like 12 pounds now nobody wants to buy cigarettes anymore I was like oh my goodness so you made a decision not to sell cigarettes I couldn't believe it and he said no no there's no way if we ever did that you know, people would actually just collapse. And I said, and he's, and I said, they are very expensive. He said, yeah, but if one day every smoker decided they were not going to buy cigarettes, that price would drop very quickly. It's because you keep buying it that they keep raising the price. Right. And so then we say to white people, here's the negotiated settlement. It is a negotiated settlement. You have signed it impliedly. You go to that training, however much it pains you. And there will be an, a, a priory assumption that you are biased and you must, the onus is on you to prove that you are not in everything you do. So you better keep a paper trail. I want to see the um, people the, from non-white backgrounds that you interviewed. I would like to see that, please. I would like to see the questions you ask I would like to see the reviews because you know they use all these mechanisms to oppress people, right? And if you can go through the, the, here's, the here's your pain choice. If we think of a utilitarian principle, everybody's trying to increase pleasure and decrease pain. Do you pain of having to go through hours of diversity training, audits of your HR function, having to second guess yourself in every single meeting that you're not saying something rude, complain? employment tribunals do you want that or do you just want to stop being racist <laughs> is that, those are your mm. so diversity training for me is necessary because it is actually a victory in this battle they must do it if they don't want to do it then there's something else so whether or not it's financial or not financial we must push for it whether or not it's effective or it's not effective because it sets a certain tone we're watching you. Mm. We are absolutely watching you. And whereas for me, I've stepped out of the corporate world. So the, I don't have a personal, you know, um, horse in the race. I've been in the corporate world. I can't say that I, mean, I did face racism, but I'm not even at that level where I can allow myself to think that one, somebody's child can come and be racist to me. You know, that is something that I haven't even yet. You're a human, I'm a human, you know, but that's a luxury I have 
because I ha- because of who I am. Some people don't have that luxury. If you're working a, a job where you don't have that luxury of family or savings, stuff like that, it's real. Um, but so in that way, when people say that, you know, we can't afford to do anti, anti-blackness training, it, you if you are in that organization, you have a responsibility to those who have come before you to make sure you push for that training and you push for that budget and you make sure everybody goes and you keep making sure that they go because it is, it is part of the struggle. It is a big part of the struggle that tells them until you stop being racist, you will be subjected to these things. And I was um, having a conversation to with somebody who, a young man, who was preparing a speech about the re-education camps in China of the Uyghur Muslims. And, um, you know, I was trying to, this was, we were having a critical thinking class and I was trying to get him to, you know, think critically about things. And I said, well, you said, you say what the Chinese are doing is wrong, right? So I'm challenging him. But I said, but how is that any different from we insisting that people in corporations go to diversity training. Isn't that re-education? And it is. It absolutely is. And it's a disgrace. And I think that that community needs to look at itself because despite everything that has happened to Black people and to Asian people, we have never had to be marched into classrooms to learn how to not be racist. Despite everything that has happened to us, nobody has given us any training about how to deal with racism. Nobody has given us any um, psychological help about dealing with the effects of racism. They don't even want to give us financial compensation when they have been racist. We didn't get any of those things. And yet, when we have businesses, we still employ people that come from that particular race. As as I said before, we have a deep level of compassion, you know? We have a deep level of compassion. But despite all of the crimes that have been committed, we now have to fund the re-education of people to teach them how to behave themselves. It's, it's unbelievable. But they better take it because what's going to come next? Look at all the... Um, the cotton wool that is placed around people who are the perpetrators of crime. Yeah, there's a lot of cotton wool. Goodness gracious. I would rather take that money and pay for for therapy for people who have been the victim of these things. That's what I would us to do. Maybe we need to split the money, but until then, because you know they're never going to accept that. So until then, march them in like children, make them sit there and make them hear what they are doing if they if they can't recognize it for themselves. And maybe if enough of them do that, because not all of them are the perpetrators. They're not. It's a small, small no, number of very, very dysfunctional people. Very small. Uh, the majority of people I've met in the workplace are fine, but there are a small no- number of people with mental health issues and they need to be taught no more. It's finished, game over. That's mine. <laughs> game over. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree with you. We are at a place where we're, we're saying we've had enough. I think when I look back at, when we look at Martin Luther King, for example, he had a 75% disapproval rate. No one liked him. <laughs> most people didn't like him. Um, when the civil rights happened in the UK, most people didn't like it. It's the same now. Most people don't like what's going on with the, the training. Most people aren't going to like that. And that's yeah. okay. Initially, I was like annoyed about it. But I'm like, yeah, you're not going to like it. You're going to have to do it. <laughs> the UK is because we've had enough. We have had enough. And I think that is a positive place to start up where people are doing things that they don't want to do. We know that we've, we've started somewhere. Yeah, I actually wanted that. I'm not sure if you're going to get to this question, but I thought it was such an interesting question um, when you circulated it um, earlier, the idea that, you know, within, I think it was about this idea of political blackness or that within other communities, there is also anti-blackness. Yes. And... I don't think, I'm not saying this as a source of pride, but just to really understand the depth of anti-blackness. Because what the depth of anti-blackness also presupposes is that black people are not themselves capable of being racist, right? So it's like, you're so subjugated and you're so, you know, pushed down that you can't even possibly imagine that there's anyone below you. Then all you have to do is sit in a black home, Five minutes 
and the truth comes out, there is a huge amount of anti-Asian sentiment in black communities. There is a huge amount of anti-white sentiment in black communities. It, 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 there is, a, you know, it's not something that you say with pride, but it's just to say that even the notion that black people do not have pride to the point where they reject other cultures um, is, is also an anti-black mentality. Black people have to be afforded the multiplicities of experiences. And I think this often comes when it, when it comes to things like marriage. For, for a lot of people, it's just not going to be acceptable for black people to not marry black people in the majority of homes. It's just not acceptable. Um, and even sometimes to marry from other black communities that are not your black community is not acceptable, right? So all of these things exist as well. And it goes both ways. I think that there are a number of reasons why it doesn't come out. Firstly, I think within black societies, I'm, I'm going to speak particularly within... I'm going to separate African societies and Caribbean societies. Dealing first with Caribbean societies, um, this is a society, and these are societies that have that have had to develop forms of communication to evade white people, right? Because if white communities knew what black communities were talking about, they could end up dead. So, so there is a general perception: you don't let white people know you have a problem with them. You don't let them know what's going on in your community because it could be a death sentence. If you demonstrate any antipathy towards a white person, you could die. But that doesn't mean your antipathy doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that you're that you don't have standards and pride and I don't want to be associated with them or anything like that. Those things exist. So that's why there is a culture within the Caribbean culture of not speaking of these things and not manifesting them because that's that's just how that unique nature of prejudice has. But it's not prejudice. Some of these things are based on real things, right? Within the African culture, because of the clan and tribal um, associations, your clan and your tribe is your first identity, yeah. right? So anybody who's not in your tribe is automatically has to justify why they want anything to do with you, right? And so there's also hierarchies even within clans and tribes and things like that. Don't even like each other. And one of the things I often will hear a lot of Africans say and believe with their gut, white people have no culture. That's the number one thing. Why do there's no culture? Like, and it's a deep, deep belief that there's no culture, there's no respect, especially for, for older people in the community. That's a prejudice. To say someone doesn't have culture, can you give any more of an insult to a human than you don't have any culture? <laughs> but we say it's so and we believe it. And don't let anyone tell black people that they're lying when you say that they don't have culture, right? Um, so these things exist, but for African, the only culture that exists is African culture, right? The only culture. Because you, your life is so steeped in culture and custom. So the idea that people will go to a wedding and everyone just sits and looks, then everyone goes to the reception, sits and eats their food and goes. <laughs> like, like, oh, oh, oh. Now that blows my mind too. You don't no, get no, no. As, as an Indian woman, honestly. You all sit in a room in black and I just crying. It's like the idea you eat and the, the you know the food doesn't have any color. <laughs> oh, you have to have certain things to sit in certain places as well. You can't even choose where to sit. No, no, never mind. You can't listen. Try and tell my try and tell my grandma she ain't sitting where she wants to sit. Not <laughs> anyone else, and she needs a little card to get in. You know, oh, you know. So all of these things they exist. But I think that within, as like I said, within the Caribbean culture, it's, it's a survival mechanism, right? You can't, you know, let people know what you're thinking. So that may have been passed down um, through generations. And I think within the African culture, it's just an unwritten rule that I and my people are the only ones in possession of culture. So I don't even need to explain to you why whatever you're doing over there, it's not culture. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know um and and so those things do exist as well they do you know those sentiments do exist and even within if I, if you know speaking and and that's why conversations have to happen both ways if we only um accept that one community is um to to blame or in possession like okay or only the asian community possess anti-blackness if we cure the asian community of anti-blackness trust me you're going to open up the cesspit that is black anti-asianness and then you're, you're left in the same position right um and black people are not forced to think about their own prejudices because we truly believe all of our prejudices are justified <laughs> no one could ever tell us our prejudices <laughs> we don't even want to enter stop it idea we don't even think we're we don't think we're prejudiced. We don't think we don't think it's possible. But I've seen, I've been in rooms, and I've heard so much nonsense. Honestly, I've heard so much nonsense. <laughs> I would never repeat. Honestly, all sorts of people like, made up things as well. You know, just things that are just made up. So everybody has a part to play in these conversations, and we should hold everybody to the highest of of standards. And I would say that. Even me as a black person, I can say that there are things within the black community as well that, but the first step you'd have to do is even, this is how deep it goes. You'd have to even convince black people that they are racist or prejudiced because a black person will never, ever, if you think white people don't think they're racist, you will never get a black person to accept that ever. Try, try brown people too. Yeah, uh, we we in the same boat. <laughs> try telling brown people that they got anti-blackness. Well, my best friend's black. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the response. My best friend's black. We got. I've had friends. My kids. I got friends that are black. I've had friends who are black my whole life. Blah blah blah. That's that's the whole thing. But I think there's also, and I remember like being in school and having black friends, and they're being, um, and they're all Caribbean. And apart from one, but they they were all Caribbean, and I remember there being a distinct dis dislike and even distaste towards Black Africans. Mm-hmm. I remember there being like, oh yeah, and I never understood mm-hmm. it. Um, my only comparison could be like Indian and Pakistani. Mm. Um, that was my comparison in my head, and I just never understood it at all. But I think there is something to be said about anti-blackness within Asian communities in comparison to Black. Um, people having anti-Asian um, sentiments is because I don't know if sentiment is the right word, but it's because because Asians assimilate to mm-hmm. whiteness and they they tend to be higher, especially Indians tend to be higher up the white supremacy ladder in terms of like society and all of that. That's where it becomes more problematic. Economically, Sorry. what you're talking about is they assimilate. Yes, yeah, of, yeah. Indians often are more, yeah, yeah more more economically. Um, better economically often than white people in certain like certain elements and so because of that that's where anti-blackness becomes a bigger issue than anti-asian sentiments within black communities because we've got more financial power we've got more economic power and i think um it's not seen as it's not it's it's harder to tell an asian person who's also a person of color that this is an issue because their response is, well, black people ain't trying hard enough. They're not working hard enough. Mm. That's a response because we're all in the same boat. Mm. They're just not trying. And so, yeah, I'm fully with you when it comes to like trying to get brown people, <laughs> try and teach them about anti-blackness. Is I've been telling D, I was like, I've been talking to brown people for quite some time about yeah, anti-blackness yeah, and it's yeah. just a nightmare. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's like a divide and conquer mentality, you know, these things that are, they're tragic and they're they're sad, you know, and you look at some communities in which people have mixed, um, you know, and, and, you know, creolized, as they say, and, and, you know, some of these issues go away, some of them don't, some of them, some of them don't go away. Um, But I think ultimately, we in in our lives are responsible for the energy that we put out there. And um, there is an element of we're never going to be able to um, to stop these people who are determined to not have conversations like this, right? The people who can't bring themselves to, to level. And in my work and the work that I do, I often don't mention anybody else but the people I'm actually teaching about. You know, I'm teaching, and I'm and my philosophy is about specificity if i'm teaching like i don't teach african history if you come to one of my classes you will see i don't teach african history i don't teach caribbean history i teach a 
people's history. You know, I will pick the Ashanti or I will pick the Jamaicans or the Haitians because there's a multiplicity and mm. histories that I prioritize in the project are histories that involve black people with other black people not outward looking because that's been told or what's been done to and if we begin to have conversations in which we look at you know if you're for example if you're telling Asian history just tell things that happened in Asia that didn't involve anybody else that's actual Asian history if you're always having to look for the colonial then you're right the same thing with black history tell specific black histories that only involve black people and begin to break the mindset and you begin to be so weighted down by it. and I know sometimes it might seem like I think there's no problem I think we shouldn't tackle any of these problems but it's also acknowledging the problems can also give the problems power in your mind you know, they're there. There are problems there. Um, everybody has a right to feel that they're special. Everybody has a right to do that. You don't have a right to use that as the basis through which to deny people their civil and human rights. That's the problem. But if I want to sit in my house and believe that my people are special, I can do that. If I want to sit in my house and only study my people's history, I can do that. I can't go into the workplace and begin to use that to discriminate against people. I can't go into my local shop and abuse people because of that. That's that's something else. So we all have individual responsibilities and racism is never going to go away because it has a societal function. We are animals at the end of the day and we developed from wild animals. And in the wild, um, you know, an antelope is not going to wait to find out if that's a nice lion, Right? it knows it's a lion. So there is um, there is something intrinsically in our wiring that is comfortable with what we know, what we think is like us. And there should be an, a way for us to be proud of that without simultaneously needing to denigrate anything else, you know? Um, and, you know, I, I really do hope in this country we don't... You mentioned the, the thing with like... Um, black Africans and black Caribbeans in the UK. And that was, it's one of the tragedies. It's one of the tragedies of the kind of 80s and 90s. But if, if you look at the next generation, it's almost gone. Well, yeah. It's all gone, you know, when you look at the next generation that have been born here, as they go into university, Afro-Caribbean societies, levels of intermarriage are very high. And those things are, you know, the number one um, group of people that um, Black Caribbeans marry that are not Caribbeans are Black Africans and vice versa. Yeah. You know, um, so, you know, that is uh, rectifying itself. And it is, in my opinion, testament to not just shared heritage or shared experience, but, you know, just something deeper you know, you recognize people on a spiritual uh, level, you know, and you begin to understand that a lot of these things didn't make sense then. They don't make sense now, you know, but the, so so much is, um, has eased up in that situation. I, I grew up and, you know, I, I've, yeah, the racism I faced from Jamaican people when I was growing up was violent, right? It was so violent, but never developed a hatred and you know would marry in a minute you know that it wouldn't even it wouldn't even be a hesitation so i think those things are are definitely i hope and i pray because obviously i'm a pan-africanist so um i, I think that the the connections are too strong we're, we're ironing them out and, and the same thing with the asian community as well i hope we don't see in this country i don't even want to speak it into existence you know idea of, of problems because when I think of my friends growing up they were Pakistani Bangladeshi Sri Lankan Indian you know these are the people I grew up with and you know I, I, I whatever goes on in people's homes as I said people can have a pride in who they are 
you can want your to marry you what you can want your child to marry someone that looks like you You can be annoyed if your child doesn't want to marry someone that looks like you you can't you know do anything beyond yeah. that but I, I don't even want to speak it into existence because uh, I think that there's just so much friendship and solidarity and um, I hope that we we move to a space where um, we can all glory in 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 our there's so much that's similar as well in the love of family and not to say that not other communities don't have it of course they do um, but there is a lot of similarities the ways we try to uplift each other I hope that's the legacy and I also don't want to give certain people the fodder they need <laughs> you know the fodder they need to make a problem where one doesn't exist we, are, we yeah. understand each other we understand each other we we'd have diff- we may have different ways of getting to the same solution but we understand each other what you know the cultures there are um, not only there are religious crossovers as well particularly with the muslim community where muslims exist in both asian and um, black communities and that's that's a very important point of contact um, as well and I, I yeah I would be very sad if that became an issue in this country and even if it's an issue in the home it's in the home yeah I understand that anti-blackness um, but the thing is that I would love to highlight uh, to everyone listening to do have a look into racism systemic racism there is different definitions of racism and racism there's one definition in regards to I, I think is sometimes confused with discrimination which is to act upon a prejudice then there's another one where it's either racism or systematic racism um but one of the two mean the same and it's more about the oppression of people typically to do with economic or social um oppression of you know a a particular ethnic person so when we talk about anti-blackness as well I kind of wanted to just highlight the difference, in my opinion, in regards to anti-blackness in black communities versus anti-blackness in Asian communities, is that because of the economic status, particularly in the UK, I will use because I don't have no idea on a global basis. But in the UK, we can see that the Indian pound from a study that we did on in society, actually, we highlighted it from I forgot which report it was. Yeah. Anyway, just go check that out. Um mm. Um, yeah, I can't remember right now. But um, the... <laughs> I did the research. I, I can't remember. The, the, the Indian pound, I think it was 80p to one pound of the white... Brit- £8.25. <laughs> so for every, every £10 a white British household has, an Indian household has £8.25. But a either Bangladeshi or Pakistani has £2.00. One of them has one pound, Caribbean has two pound, and African has There we go. So that's just uh, laying the basis of the economic status of people. So when you then turn around and have anti-blackness, but you also have the power to oppress on an economic basis, it becomes, in my opinion, a bigger problem. Mm. Because now it's not prejudice... Or perhaps discrimination where you could do something, but it doesn't necessarily take away opportunity. It's now become the point of taking away opportunity. So when you think about when you listen to this, if you're not from the communities of uh, of any black community or any uh, Asian community, do you think about even that when we talk about racism within intercommunities and how that could play out as well? Yeah, I, I would just add to that. Those statistics... Um, I think the way I mean th- that sounds crazy actually um, the, the the disparity I would just caveat it if possible I haven't seen the study haven't seen the study but I think history does help us here a little bit um, the first thing that I would say is we have to look at um, the extent to which um, you have people maintaining contacts back home so even though an African person may have one pound, they may have started out with two pound, but one pound back home because there is a less of a connection. When Africans come to this country, there is always the belief that they're going back home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. But the Caribbean community that have been here since the 1950s, there was this sense of permanent migration. That's it. Coming here. I- 
And we also have to think about the influence of um, refugees. So a disproportionate number of Africans that are being counted are refugees compared to the Asian or the Caribbean um, population. So that is, of course, going to affect because there's trauma there that, you know, um, will, and also they have less earning capacity in, in the first place because they're on refugee status. So I think that the repatriation of funds, because on the other side, Africa is one, Africa is the biggest recipient of repatriated funds from the United Kingdom than any other country. Right. Um, India is the biggest recipient of repatriated income from the Middle East mm. because of the migrant laborers. But in the UK, the biggest recipient of repa- repatriated funds from the UK are go to Africa. So there is also a financial drain. So I think on the other side, we'd have to also count the amount of money that goes back to Africa because there is no African person who doesn't believe they're going home. And there's no African person who doesn't believe that they need to build their house at home. And you often have um, the 25, 30 years here is just an exercise in building a house back home. And then everyone gets on a plane at says bye to their kids. We go home. I think if we count that, we have to take that into account 100%. as well. Um, and that might skew the figures. And it also, also with the Asian figures as well, I think we also have to look at immigration laws. And the majority of people who are being counted are people who might have come here from a, a, a top socioeconomic background back in India, right? Because there is a caste system. So you're already taking the cream of the society and they're coming here often, I'm talking about recent people, not necessarily old people. Now you can't come from India unless you are a doctor or something like that, right? Um, so that is also a disproportionate, um, you know, skew and the length that people have been here as well. So I think that belies certain things because it makes it, it, it might hide certain problems 100%. that we really need to talk about because we we would really need to talk about, for if we looked at that figure, we would discount, for example, the experience of Indian migrants in the Middle East, which is abominable, right? If we just took that figure as it as it, as it was, for example, um, I think we need to, to look more at global transfers of wealth not about what's what's going on here because that that might skew it and that's not to defend the figures it's just to put them in in some sort of context of why people come here when they come here and what they do with their money um because i i just know for myself that i started out with five members of my family here that no one else left you know Everyone is gone back home, and that's the same with most of my African friends. Their, their parents are not going to die here. It's an abomination to die here. You go home before you die. You must go home. Not one hundred percent. It's know? good to put context to numbers. I just wanted to uh, correct what I said earlier. So I said that um, Pakistani, a Pakistani was actually five pound, and Bangladeshi was one pound. The rest of the figures were correct, mm-hmm. but I just wanted to correct that. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the only bit I would disagree with is the Indians don't always come from higher caste. I think often we, so I'm from seen as a lower caste, but my family have what they'll always, um, what's the code? I don't know what it's called. You vouch for someone. Mm. So you make sure that you're earning enough money. And that's, it's a traditional thing. Indians will always do that. We'll have, we'll make sure one, as soon as one of your family members are here, yeah. that's it. It's go time. It's for you to get the rest of your family here so we can all earn. So that's, I think that's where it comes from. But also we're not counting a lot of Indians. I don't know about Pakistani or Bangladeshi or any other ethnicity, but I know that we have a lot of financial wealth at home. You'll, you'll often know that Indians will have, um, I know my family have got houses back at home, mm. back in India. Mm. That's not, that's not counted when we're talking about wealth. They're not going to tell, they're not going to tell like when it comes to these statistics, yeah, I've got this money and I've got this house and I've, cause in comparison, like it's a lot, like if you add that to the stats as well. So yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I think those, those things are really important to take into account. Um, and all, all I think is even for me, like getting into conversations, dissecting these things, it's like when we were talking about what is black and I kind of said, I just accept it, you know, I, whatever anyone self identifies, because trust me, the, 
the number one thing that anyone who wants to win wants us to do is have this conversation in which we begin to divide up you know and begin to have because what 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 begins to then happen is we lose sight we lose sight which is that every every one of us should be able to reach our highest potential and one group reaching the highest potential does not mean the other group we're not competitive we're not they want see cuz i'm not comparing myself to anybody but the people who are directly oppressing me that's who i'm comparing myself to because this this mentality is how they got away with it in east africa dividing up two groups of people who were both oppressed by making one group think they weren't oppressed right that's what happened in Africa. One group were told they weren't oppressed, but then they came to this country and people were calling them names and then they realized, "Oh, right? That's what happened you remove people from one country, you tell them there's something, then they come here and then you treat them a certain way." That's what happened in Southern Africa as well, telling a group of people they're not oppressed. Then they come here, they see they're oppressed. That's what happened in the Caribbean. Telling Caribbean people you're British. Then they come here and realize, "Oh, Well, I guess some people are more British than other people, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Right? So yeah. I'm not saying we all need to ignore our differences or anything like that, but any energy we have in my opinion must be geared towards bringing down the systems of white supremacy. I want Asian to be a millionaire. I want every J- Jamaican, every Caribbean to be a millionaire. Their millionaireness is nothing. compared to the millionaireness of the people who are doing this why we have in society why i have to have the african history project mm-hmm. you know not because of anything anybody else has done you cannot equate the denigration of race that has been committed by western europeans against africans and asians to anything that either group has done to each other it will take asian people in this country 400 years to sniff at the oppression that um white domination has done to black people asian anti-blackness is unfortunate it's unfortunate but if i have an issue i don't want to spend it trying to find the issues that asian people have with me because whatever issues you have with me I love you and I will defend you I will get over it and we will fight together don't like something about me think that I'm lazy me too I have I have feelings for you too whatever but if somebody is coming for you in that employment tribunal I am with you that's the yeah. yeah. I spend my energy I- Yeah, and I think one of the things that I found as well, I absolutely agree with you, sorry D. One of the things I found when I was working in the the like the university workspace, I was constantly having to defend black people and then seeing the reception of that was, well you think that black people can never be wrong. And I'm like, no, there's enough people against black people, they don't need another one of me. There's enough racism working against them and I completely agree with you. We don't need and I was like, if I'm having an issue, that if there's an issue in the black community that's for them to deal with, that's not for me to say anything. If I've got a friend, I've got an issue with a friend who's black as as something that they've done towards my community, I will go and talk to them yeah. personally. I'm not going to go out and spurt it to everyone and tell everyone these are the issues that are happening because the bigger issue is white supremacy the bigger issue is racism so it, as soon as it's that kind of it's that i don't even have to explain it but it's that kind of argument of like as soon as you talk about a crumb when there's a whole food core of issues then the 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 arrow gets pointed to that crumb and it's just like that's not the issue here there's a whole food court here why are we pointing over here and so i i like the the whole notion that we're trying to point to these minor issues and i, I try not i'm trying not to black anti-blackness is not a minor issue but the other minor issues of like you haven't simplified it the you haven't minor, simplified it not minor when when i say minor i don't mean that they are minor in themselves but minor to the bigger issue mm. so when people talk about um 
black on black crime and all this other stuff. It's just like black on black crime is not an issue. It's <laughs> black people live within their communities. There might be crimes, um, but let's stop calling it black on black crime for one. But that is a is a smaller issue of the bigger issue. Mm. Anti-blackness is a smaller issue of the bigger yeah, issue. Yeah, yeah. It's very important for every community to look at itself, especially a community that has economic power. Mm-hmm. But here's what I don't want to give to Asian people. However deep your anti-blackness gets, and I clearly cannot imagine what you've heard at home, what you've experienced in the community, but there is, I, I would caution you trying to find an equivalency with white anti-blackness. I wouldn't that on you. And here's why. I've met many Asians in my life, but I've never looked in their eyes and thought that they thought I wasn't a human being, okay? At the depth of white supremacy is the belief that black people are animals. That is the depth, that we are not deserving of life, that we are barbaric, that we should be stripped enslaved and beaten to death, thrown over the side of boats, that our languages should be crushed and ripped from our throats, that our religions are irrelevant, our children are animals, our women are to be raped. I don't want to give to Asian people that. That's what you're probably perceiving from me. And it's not because I don't believe you, but I'm not ready to begin to see every Asian with that history. There is racism. What I've tried to show is there's racism in everything and in every community and we have to address it. But I, I have too much love and I've received too much love from that community for me to ever put it in that category. It's just not the same. But, but I do think, I'll, I'll be honest, I do think that there are, I have heard from South Asian communities some of the stuff that you've just said. I have heard that. So I do think, whilst I agree with you that there are different levels of anti-blackness, there are different severities of it, I, this is why I think it's so hard to penetrate them. Because I, I, from my perspective, from what I've heard, um, there has been some very alarming stuff. and. Uh, yeah, severity, the severity of, of the way that often South Asians see black people as inhumane. Like outright, I'm entirely, like I've I've heard them compare black people to inhumane um, stuff. And so um, I think that's where for me, I really do see it as a, a massive concern. But I recognise that this, <laughs> we've spoken, I think we can oh, speak ages. We really can. So, um, on that note, <laughs> on that note, I think it's time to wrap up. Um, but I just wanted to say a massive, <laughs> a massive thank yes, you for amazing. joining us. And if you've got like, if you, if, if for any like fifteen second wrap up, is there anything last you want to share? would like to say yeah just you know um for people who want to engage more in in this conversation um i would push everyone to first find out about themselves there's so many wonderful resources across many cultures our ancestors have left us with a plethora of writings so please go on amazon and look and find the narratives of your people and read them um and then if you want anything more structured then it's african historyproject.org come and speak to us and then on a daily basis i think push yourself to see um the best in everyone push yourself even even in people who may not be deserving of it in the minute you know when you meet that person in hr um you know <laughs> push yourself to always believe that we are capable of better um let let our jump to fear or our jump to um, judgment be the last jump because it is because of people better than us that we are here right somebody survived for us to be here so we have to survive mentally physically and um, I've learned a lot you know and I might look at this issue that we've spoken about lastly in a different way it would be hard it would be hard for me to put that community and I, I, I don't want it to exist maybe I'm being delusional 
you know, about it. I don't want it to exist. It's painful to hear. Um, but at the same time, I believe that there is a goodness in every community. There is value in every community. And if that is the case, I'll pray on it. I really will pray on it that we will, we will be better people. Um, and that's really it. Ah, amazing. No. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Have you got any last no, words? No, pretty much. I was just going to say that this has been an absolutely fantastic, just kind of, as always, enlightening conversation. I always learn so much from connecting with you, Peike, and, of course, all your knowledge. Like she said, is again, please do follow her at african history project that's on instagram they of course have the website.org um no definitely tap into that knowledge um and please interact with us actually if there was anything that we spoke about that perhaps i don't know you felt most enlightened by perhaps just want to share what you what you feel after listening please do Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for Peike for joining us. Don't forget to check us all out on our socials on the poster. We are at InSociety underscore UK on everything. Thank you for listening and don't forget to tune in next week. Um, we'll be joining with another guest.